We had family members who, who had been shot by the, by the communist uh, in 1953. He was just 23 years old and was taken, and, and the communist was so cruel that after they shot him, they sent back the, co- the coat uh, to the mother with the, with the bullet holes. The coat he was wearing. Right. Wow. So, you know, a couple of times they searched our home. Uh, that was just the reality. We got used to it. Like it or not, we are born into other people's stories. Our story is a sequel of the story of our ancestors. We are born into their dysfunctions, problems, and sickness. The sins of our ancestors leave marks on us, just as their virtue does. Of course, we are not determined to guide our story in the direction it was set by them, but we cannot ignore the impact that our story has on ours. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler, and looking forward to sharing the story of Gobber Grace. Now living here, right? moving to the right. U.S. from Hungary. In 2017, you got a new assignment with crew. Now you're living just outside of Kansas City. Yes, it's a great surprise to us also. We lived all of our lives in Hungary. We, my wife and I born in Hungary. We are Hungarians. And at age 50, the Lord uh, changed uh, <laughs> the direction of our life and called us to a, a place where we never thought we were going to be at and never wanted to live. But that's a, that's a familiar story from the Bible, right? Yes. I mean, sometimes God is taking to us to places that we don't want to be at. I remember learning about Abraham. He was a man of tents and stakes and altars and <laughs> right, right. I, I kind of kind of feel like uh, that a little bit as as our whole family now lives in three countries, two continents, scattered all around the world. But it's good. You and your wife Edna, and you've been married thirty seven years. I'm thirty thirty years. Oh, I'm adding years to you. That, that, that's fine. I mean, I, I know I look young. No, you do. <laughs> but God's blessed you with three children? Three children, right. We have a daughter uh, who's almost 26. She lives in Scotland and a medical student. She has one more year it's a, in a five-year program. Her name is Rahel, Rachel in, in English. We have a, a, a son who's 23 this month. He studies in college back in Hungary. And we have a son who's 19, just graduated high school in Olathe South Public High School in Kansas. <laughs> Of course, I know you have been stateside uh, numerous times, and, right. and we first met how many years ago? It's been several years ago. Oh gosh, at least fifteen, I, I twelve or something like that. I mean, I, I know that it had been over a decade. Has it been that long? Yeah, it's yeah. crazy how time um, flies. Right. right, I didn't realize it had been that long. Was, but we kind of bumped into each other at my church. You were, I think, going to share in a class, and right. you looked like you were at a place trying to find your way, and we started talking, and uh, right. and that led to a radio show. Yes. And then you're back here now. So what is the adjustment like, the transition been like for you, you know, moving from Hungary and making a home in America? Right. Well, it's it's a uh, it's very challenging on 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 two two three main fronts. One is that, you know, we left a a really flourishing ministry back in Hungary. And when you're 50 years old and you spend pretty much all your life in ministry, you know, and you were part of the ministry underground under communism and build the whole thing. You have a lot of connections and a lot of impact and influence. So there was a grieving process of, of leaving that. Also, there was a grieving process of leaving family, family members, and how our 
family is going to adjust to the new reality that actually we are living in three countries right now yes. and on two continents in different time zones with the very limited opportunities to see each other and how our kids are going to navigate their young adult lives, finding their ways. While we have elderly parents back at home, my mom is in a nursing home. So, so there's the family aspects. There is the ministry aspects, which, you know, we stepped into a leadership to to help give leadership to a new segment of crew called church movements. So that's the second. And the third aspect is how do we navigate a completely new culture? And we came in a, in a I think, in a very, a very tumultuous moment mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. where in the past four years, four and a half years, we have witnessed incredible, um, how to say, noise or lot of lot of uh, changes. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like the U.S. is the epicenter of very seismic changes. Which I, I think would underline your call to come here because right. of the, the movement of what you're doing now, that the 21st century church is urbanization. Right. Five million people move into cities every month. Every month, right. And there is uh, flexing and change, and, and there are strong... Uh, divisions. Right. And they're, right. they're growing. I want to get into some of this. Dwight Moody once said that if we reach the cities, we will reach the nation. If we fail the cities, they become a cesspool, which will infect the entire nation. Right. I mean, look around what's going on right now. I mean, we really hesitated to, to come to the U.S. because it was hard for us to view the U.S. as a mission field. Because wherever you go, you see a church. But the church is very visible, but not very powerful. Okay, uh, the, the the salt is most powerful when it's least visible. And as we as we move to the U.S., um, we we realize that I mean staggering realities of the U.S. because the fastest decline of the church in the world right now it happens right here. Two point five million people leave the church every single year. Four thousand churches closes. Two hundred million people are unchurched in this nation, which puts the U.S. the fourth largest unchurched nation in the world. If you compare that with Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim nation with 245 million people living there, every single year, 2 million people become a believer in Jesus. So the estimation that if this this continues, by 2040, Indonesia is going to be a majority Christian nation. Why the U.S., which is the most resourced uh, Christian nation in the world with the most literature and the best teachings and the best churches is is in a fast track in declining. Wow, what a contrast. Yep. Well, I want to talk some about your backstory as we mm-hmm. talk about stories not shaping our life, but impacting our life, influencing mm-hmm. our life in many ways. Uh, fascism and communism had left their deep and cruel roots in Hungary, as you right. mentioned, but it also left really cruel and deep roots in your family. Yes. Well, uh, you know, as, as, as you started, I mean, our, 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 we're born into those stories. You know, we can't help it. And those stories are marked by the whole society. You know, our, our family is not just an isolated uh, a island. In a, we're living in the society, and it impacts us. You know, one side of our family, you know, my mother's side of the family is Jewish. And, um, you know, when the Nazis came into power, uh, some of my ancestors, um, my great-grandfather's uh, five siblings uh, was taken to Auschwitz. Um, they perished. We don't even know their names. We have um, we have all of their wealth, 
it was a pretty well-off family. So, you know, it was a business owner and everything was lost. Now, the other side of the family is, is, is you know, has noble backgrounds and so my father's side. So they were also outcast in the society after the communists came in and, and they were viewed as the oppressor class. So they lost everything. My father, uh, my grandfather, uh, my grandmother, they were deported. I mean, I, I have in my basement, I have the letter dated 1954 when they got a, a notice that in 24 hours they need to leave their house and they only can take one suitcase with them. That's all. Everything was taken by the government. So they, and they were, they were deported to the countryside to live in a, you know, with others in a tiny house. They were forced labor. So my, my grandfather got a stroke there. Uh, my great uncle was taken to the Soviet gulags for 11 years. No one knew if he was alive or not. And one day he just showed up at the doorstep of, of his wife who was waiting for him. But, you know, for after 11 years, hmm. we had family members who, who had been shot by the, by the communist uh, in 1953. He was just 23 years old and was taken, and, and the communist was so cruel that after they shot him, they sent back the, co- the coat uh, to the mother with the, with the bullet holes. The coat he was wearing. Right. Wow. So, you know, a couple of times they searched our home. Uh, that was just the reality. We got used to it. Well, the 1950s were very dark in this newly established regime, the communist regime, because the war was over, and right. so you thought tragedy was over. It was just beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, it, it started with, with, with the Nazis, you know, in, in, the, in the 30s, because that's when, when really the, the, the Jewish laws started to, to kick in, and then, and then the, and the, the, and the war and then the communists came in, and then 1956 we had the revolution against the the Soviets, uh, and uh, that was, you know, destroyed. It's just like, you know, generations after generations living under oppression. I mean, your I think it was your great grandfather was a Baptist minister. That was my wife's grandfather. Your wife's grandfather right. was it was a Baptist minister, right? In the 1970s, was handing out Bibles to Russian soldiers, right? And and because of that, he couldn't become a, he couldn't be a pastor anymore. Listen, the, the church was controlled by the government. Okay, and the way the church survived is that they tried to embrace the false theology. Okay, and so so uh, my wife's grandfather, uh, who who was a very faithful Baptist minister, and you know I wanted to get the gospel out. When, when he walked by the, the – it was really funny what he did. He was walking by the army base uh, in the city where the, where the Russians were, and he threw Bibles across the, the fence. <laughs> but they caught him, of course, and they kicked him out uh, from being a minister. So he had to work as an unskilled worker uh, for the rest – you know, until, you know, retirement. And it was just a couple of years before retirement he lost his job as a pastor. But – you know, uh, interrogations was common, and, and that was in the 80s when when I became a believer, okay, and, and maybe we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to get later. there. We're, okay. we're not there yet. We're, we're, we want to get there, but as we fast forward from this period to the late 1960s, early 70s, really from birth through your childhood, your life was really marked with life-threatening diseases right, and right. also painful abuse. Right. You know, probably because how my parents grew up. I mean, I, it, as an adult, you, you look back, I mean, how 
what is their responsibility and 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 what is it that they were just they were just the the victim of 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 what happened yes. what what history brought to them but but my father developed a uh, major anger problems and he became very i mean f- both physically and mentally and emotionally abusive which led to to the point where my parents got divorced but i one of my very first memory of my father is that when i was 6 years old i broke my leg i couldn't walk on it and he forced me to walk on it and i i remember that i was just you know in tears trying to was this without medical treatment this yeah, was no medical treatment no medical treatment and and he didn't believe it's broken and uh, it was not a cast on it and he was just forcing me to walk on my and i wanted to please him okay i, I gotta please this authority figure in my life even if it's brutally hurting me and and you know those things embed in you yeah and, and kind of becomes a life pattern and and you start to Later in your adult life, you start to realize, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to please people even at the, at the cost of a horrible pain. Wow. So, so that's – but now later what happened, I, I, I had all kinds of diseases. So first they thought – Did you actually spend 200 days in the hospital? Yes. There was, there was a year when I spent 200 days in the hospital. First they thought – I mean, back then it was – you know, it, it was communism, Okay. Don't don't think about hospitals like here or or the medical treatment like here. Even in the seventies, it was very hindered, and and so I, I I developed all kinds of problems. First, they thought I have leukemia. Then they said no, it's not. Then they said I have some kind of kidney failure. Then it's not. And I was so sick I couldn't walk. So for the weekend, my mom carried me home on her back, because my father was not willing to drive to the hospital and pick me up. And uh, when they get a divorce, um, the judge, I was eight, it was, it was a, a tragic moment in my life because although my father was abusive, at least I felt that there is some kind of security in my life as they were together. My mother left, who was the only security in my life, with my sister, and I stayed with my, my father. And and back then, I did not understand how, you know, what was the arrangement and how did this happen. Later, I, I learned that, you know, it was of, of the, my father threatened my mom and that there was all kinds of violent thing involved in that. But uh, I, uh, I developed a very severe asthma, allergy. It was so severe that, that the doctors thought that I'm, I'm going to die by the age of 18 or 20. Wow. So at, at age 12, it, it was so dire my mom went to the court and wanted to get me back. And it was a very difficult process. But at, at age 12, I ran away from my father while there was this whole court procedure. And I lived with him and he terrorized me. I had to run away and <laughs> he chased me with the police and my mom and my, my mom was hiding me in a hospital. At 10, you developed asthma. Right. Very severe where you spent another many months in the right. hospital. Right. You know, back then, the, the, the medication, especially that was available in, in Hungary under communism, it was very limited. So there were numerous times when, when the ambulance rushed me to the hospital and, you know, they put me in oxygen, you know, tent and all kinds of trying to revive me or bring me back to life. Truly, it, there was just no hope. Mm. 
My mom was desperate, uh, trying to save me in this whole situation. Um, finally, the judge, when I was about 13 or 14, almost over a year-long process, the judge decided uh, that if they want to save my life, they have to take to my mom, and my father cannot see me. And the reason why the judge decided that, because my, my mom was hiding me in the hospital. And one day, just out of the blue, I just looked out on, on the window, and I saw my father walking into the hospital. It, it was in another, in another city. So, and I ran to the doctor. I hardly could breathe and say, it's just, my father is coming in, and, and, and he's chasing me. And then, and then he said, okay, come down, come down. And then, you know, they talked to him. And the doctor came into to the room where I was, yeah, well, your father want to see you and just want to talk to you. And, and I was so scared that I, that I, I hid in the attic of the, of the hospital so they couldn't find me. That's what changed the whole course of the case. Because when the judge asked that, well, my father, did you meet with your son? And my father said, well, my son is not ready to ask for forgiveness and that's how the the judge saw through yeah how you know he was just thankfully, messed up thankfully he saw that right yes thankfully well in the middle of a life crisis with the pain the abuse and the fear a life changing moment occurred at 14 for you right well actually uh, we were just over all of this whole this ordeal with with my father and and i moved with my mom and my stepfather um, my stepfather had a, a, a daughter from the per- previous marriage. That was the first time when I met with a believer. Actually, my stepfather's cousin was a, was a believer, and he talked to me about God and about Jesus. And I thought, I mean, that was the very first believer I met in my life. Because under communism, I've, I've, I never heard anything about God or Jesus. And I thought, this guy came from the moon. I mean, nobody believes in, in, in God. But as he explained to me that God is a father, a loving father who cares for me, who's not abusive, who loves me, I thought, that, that's what I want. So I, I said a prayer. I, I, I remember that. I was, I was laying in my bed, a dark night. I was struggling with my fear, with, uh, I mean, all kinds of anxiety, depression, everything. And I said, God... If you're really out there, I want you to be my father. <laughs> and he took it more seriously than I did, obviously. And he just you know, completely changed my life. I mean, there was total hopeless. I mean, I was so hopeless that when I was in eighth grade, uh, I was so behind in school and everything that, that I was stuttering. I mean, even at age 20, I, was, I still stuttered. Uh, the teacher told my mom at eighth grade that this kid is so stupid mm-hmm. that don't even bother to send him to high school. Mm. So it, it just <laughs> it, so that's how drastic my, the change for me was to become a believer. And, and this was a, a serious commitment because you were being forced by those in your school to become a member of the right. Young Communist Party to the point that the vice principal of the school told you that if you didn't become a member, he would cut your throat. Well, not who would, uh, he said, you yourself cut your own throat. Oh, you cut your that. throat. Okay. Right. It's just like meaning, yeah. you're, you're not going to go to university. You're, gonna be, you you're know, just going to be in the, right. any hope of a future here. Right. Yeah. Because, because the normal thing was that when you go to high school, 
is that you join to the Young Communist Party. It's called KISS in Hungarian. It's like, you know, the, the English word KISS, but it's, it just, it's yes. just the, the, the acronym for the, the Young Communist Party. And uh, if you wanted to go to, to higher education, you had to be a member of that. It was just like, oh, it's a normal thing. Otherwise, we are not going to accept you. And, and at 14, I, I, I was already a, a believer. That summer was just totally transformative in my life. And I said, I knew that I, I can't do that. Now, I, I knew believers who joined the Young Communist Party just because of, well, that's the way we do life. That's how we get to university. But for me, it was like, no, I cannot do that. So I said, I said to the teacher, I, I, I won't do that. Because I don't know what, why. I, I just felt that. I don't judge those who did. Okay, I mean, that was their path. Uh, my path was, no, I, I can't compromise this way. Well, there was a couple that influenced you and helped disciple you, an American missionary couple right. who were living there, Mike and Kathy Uno, who were right. living there in Hungarian under different job titles. They weren't missionaries right. because they're not allowed. Right. But it was through that friendship and that relationship, right. they helped you to grow in this new faith that yes. you had. Yes. You know, uh, I, I, I'm very thankful for them because they saw how, even though I was a, I was a believer but because of my upbringing, I was struggling with a lot of issues, you know, insecurity, uh, you know, fear. And, and unfortunately, at that time, my, my mother was going through a second divorce from my stepfather. And the situation at home, at home was just terrible. Yeah. Okay. We lived in one room. All of us lived in one room. Okay. It, it was horrible. So, so they, they opened their home. They lived in Hungary. They had cover jobs, and um, they opened their home, and for 18 months, I could live with them. and actually saw a Christian family the very first time, and, and, uh, and they taught the Bible to me, and, and Mike discipled me, and I learned to share my faith, and I went to, to, to dorms. To you you were secretly meeting with students, oh, yeah. sharing the Jesus film. Right. Uh, <laughs> and in the summer of 85... You were arrested for sharing right, your faith, right? Well, it, it was it was really fun. Well, look, <laughs> well, at, at, at that moment, it was just like you know, when you're eighteen, nineteen years old, you you said, "Oh, I don't care anything about anything. I just want to do what 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 I believe I need to do." With one of my good friend, um, we we thought we're gonna we had a free summer technically because we were in between schools and. Well, we're going to just share Christ. There's a, a, a huge lake in, in Hungary, and we went from one town to another. We, we, put, we, we had a tent where we, we slept and we moved. and So we shared Christ with everything that moved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the one, one day we were, we were coming out from, from the water, you know, and the secret police was there. Okay, so they they arrested us and they confiscated Bibles. They interrogated us. They they searched my mom's home, um, and of course, you know that cut my opportunity on that year to go to university. Just a, a year later, they allowed me to go in the evening course. Yeah, where I they said I'm I'm a bad influence on the young people, on my on my peers. Right. So, but that that was that was. You know, it was scary at the moment. And that was a tough time for you, too, because right. of that not allowing you to go to day school and take the classes. You also were working like a, a seven at night to seven right. in the morning job. Right. What were you doing in that job? Well, there, there was there was a um, 
a guy who was manufacturing plastic parts. So there's those big machines where you melt the, the plastic and then it pushes. So it, it was actually it was a good paying job and I needed that because I had to support myself yeah. uh, fully and also help my mom as she was going through the divorce and we moved into a, a one-room apartment, another <laughs> one-room apartment, and my sister was giving birth to her child and she moved in with us. So actually I lived in the hallway of, 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 of our home so I put down a mattress uh, when I slept but but typically what happened is because I, I had night shift the place that I worked had a sauna which was not used so I after my night shift I slept in the sauna for four hours then went in uh, on my thing and went to the class at evening <laughs> <So> <laughs> it was it was fun oh my goodness but when you're young you can do that <laughs> you can do that right <laughs> okay no I couldn't <laughs> Gover, this has been wonderful sharing your journey and ultimately how we have seen today how hope in Christ has come alive in your heart and has given you uh, purpose. And there's more to the story that we're going to have to continue on the next program, if you can hang around. I would like to continue the story because there's so much more I want to talk about is the healing process. I can't help but think there are those listening who have been in their own traumatic life experiences, maybe similar to yours, maybe not as intense as yours, but still have struggled, maybe have felt there is no hope. We have discovered that the hope is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. And through the living word of Scripture that provides encouragement and direction and purpose for us. We want to continue that next time. But as we say goodbye on this show, if somebody wanted to know more, now your story is in a little book that I have here in my hand. Right. This is available. Yeah, they can they can actually download it if they want it. If they go Grace for City, which is my name, G R E S Z, forcity dot com, they can download that uh, little booklet. Uh, the title would be that they need to look for a story that should never have happened, hence deserves to be told. Yes, and that's available. And plus, your website, as you mentioned. G-R-E-S-Z for city, F-O-R city dot com. And it is an incredible website. This story is there. Stories about the ministry, what is going on in the urban work with the, the church movements. And it's a great site. So I encourage our friends to go visit that site to learn more. But what we're going to do right now is say goodbye, but come back next time and continue the conversation. Thank you. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>